Hello and welcome back to Complexity Impact. This is the forensic psychology season and in this episode we will be looking at the psychology of police investigations. So as a quick reminder, forensic psychology is a field of psychology that deals with all aspects of human behavior as it relates to the law or legal systems. This week we examine psychology's role in criminal investigations. Many people are aware that psychology is used in criminal investigations. Psychologists have identified a number of key investigative tasks where psychology is particularly relevant. One of these tasks relate to the collection and evaluation of investigative information, information that is often obtained from suspects. Investigative decision-making, especially decisions that require an in-depth understanding of criminal behavior, is particularly relevant to this discussion. So police interrogations are a process whereby the police interview a suspect for the purpose of gathering evidence and obtaining a confession. So confession evidence is one is often viewed as a prosecutor's most potent weapon. In Canada, a confession usually has to be backed up by some other forms of evidence. But confessions are a very, very useful investigative and prosecutorial tool. People who confess to a crime are more likely to be prosecuted and convicted than those who do not. Now, being interrogated by the police for the purpose of extracting a confession is often considered to be inherently coercive. And there's no question that police interrogations were coercive in the past. Consider police tactics in the mid-20th century, for example when whipping was occasionally used to obtain confessions, or in the 1980s when New York City police officers were accused of jolting a suspect with a stun gun in order to extract a confession. Now, these overt acts of physical coercion, thankfully, have become l much less frequent. We also know, through research and evidence, that the findings from heavily coercive and physically abusive forms of interrogation are actually less reliable. People have a tendency to say anything to stop the pain. But what they've been replaced with is largely misunderstood. And while the physical coercion might not be frequent, it has been replaced with a much more subtle, psychologically based interrogation technique system. Now, Granted, many police officers often view coercive techniques as a necessary evil in order to obtain confessions from guilty persons. Right? It, leading authorities in the field of interrogation training openly state that because offenders are typically reluctant to confess, they must often be tricked into doing so. Now, things are different depending on where you are. In England, for example, police officers are trained to use interrogation techniques that are far less coercive than those used in North America. Now, this has primarily uh, more to do with the fact that their courts have begun to recognize some of the potential problems associated with coercive interrogation practices. And one of the most glaring ones is the increased likelihood of false confessions. Now, in North America, uh, U.S. and Canada, the most common interrogation training program that used to be instructed was called the Reed Model of Interrogations. It's a technique originally developed by John E. Reed, 
a polygrapher from Chicago. The read model consisted of three uh, of a three-part process. So, in the first stage, was the goal was to gather evidence related to the crime and to interview witnesses and victims. In the second stage, it was to conduct a non-accusatory interview uh, of the suspect to assess any evidence of deception. But by the third stage, if there was a strong conviction that the person was guilty, the third stage was primarily to conduct an accusatory interrogation of the suspect, especially if they were perceived to be guilty. And the primary objective of stage three was to secure a confession. The Reed model of interrogation is based on the idea that suspects clearly do not confess to crimes they have committed because they fear potential consequences that await them if they do. And in their estimation, the fear of the potential consequence is not sufficiently outweighed by the internal feelings of anxiety associated with remaining deceptive. So the goal then of the Reed model is to reverse that state of affairs. It's to make the consequences of confessing more desirable than the anxiety related to the deception. Now the consequences of confessing and the anxiety of remaining deceptive are areas that can be manipulated by the interrogator through the use of psychologically based techniques. If you're trying to get a, a broader understanding, you know, there the techniques used in the read model of interrogation can basically be broken down into two general categories, minimization and maximization techniques, also known as good cop, bad cop techniques, right? So minimization techniques, also referred to as soft cell tactics used by the police interrogators, are designed specifically to lull the suspect into a false sense of security. Now these tactics include you know, the use of sympathy uh, or excuses, or justifications, things that diminish the severity of the crime, right? Or at least to give the feeling like the police gets them, right? The gets the person who's committed the crime. And they try and offer up a version of a story that makes the person feel like they could understand. It's possible, right? And in so doing, they're trying to build rapport by minimizing the impact or minimizing the severity, if you will, the shock value of what they want the person to confess to. Conversely, maximization techniques, or you know, the better, more accurate term for them, scare tactics, are often used by interrogators to intimidate a suspect that they already believe to be guilty. The intimidation is typically achieved by exaggerating the seriousness of the offense or by making claims about evidence the police supposedly have or other subjects or suspects that they might have in custody or potentially have in custody. And the idea is to give them a good solid scare in the hope that they will fess up, right? Now, the Reed model of interrogation is used so extensively in North America that it has been researched a great deal. And maybe, maybe that's why we know as much as we do about it. It's also why the courts have had an opportunity to look at it, right? So the three biggest problems researchers have found evident um, in the model is the first, um, the ability of investigators to detect deception. The second relates to investigator bias. So the problem here deals with the fact that interrogations begin after the interrogator already believes the suspect to be guilty. And you can see how that might lead the conversation down a certain path. And the third problem has to do with the coercive nature of certain interrogation practices that could possibly result in false confessions. 
In research relating to investigator bias, a number of important findings emerged, right? So interrogators indicated that they exerted more pressure on suspects to confess when they already believed the suspect was guilty and used more coercive tactics in those circumstances. It's interesting, in 1966, the U.S. Supreme Court singled out the Reed model for creating a coercive environment. That's one of the reasons and the result from which uh, that suspects today have a right to silence and a lawyer referred to in America as Miranda rights. So in Canada, suspects have similar rights, right? And these are included in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, some problems that exist, despite the existence of, um, you know, state-sanctioned rights and freedoms, is that many individuals do not actually understand the rights that they are guaranteed. This is particularly true for vulnerable populations that include young people and those with impaired intellectual capacity. And, you know, police in some jurisdictions have been found to minimize the importance of those guaranteed rights and to use rapport-building techniques in an attempt to increase compliance. The result? large number of uh, individuals waive their rights, particularly people who are actually innocent of the crime in question. And sometimes, as you will see, that, that, that can have disastrous impacts, even though they are innocent, right? In 2012, uh, in fact, a, a judge of the Alberta Provincial Court ruled that confessions obtained by the Reed-styled interrogation uh, was actually involuntary and therefore inadmissible. See, within North America, the key issue a judge must consider is whether the confession was made voluntarily or whether the defendant was competent even uh, when he or she made that confession. Confessions that result from overt form of coercions basically will not be admitted in court. And they typically... Uh, exclude it if it was elicited by brute force, so right, the beatings and the whippings of the past, prolonged isolation, deprivation of food or sleep, threats of some kind of harm, maybe of punishment, promises of immunity or leniency that, you know, making, making unfair or inaccurate statements that give a false version of what's happening. A little trickery <laughs> is found to be admissible, but too much is clearly a problem. Equally, the failure to notify suspects of their rights is uh, is a problem which can which can prevent something from being admitted in court. You know, uh, an important case that might be worth noting here is in 2000, R versus Oikel. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled that police interrogation techniques, which consist of various forms of psychological coercion, are in fact acceptable and that confessions extracted through their use can be admissible in court if they believed it was given voluntarily. So let's put some background to that, right? Richard Oikel confessed to seven counts of arson occurring in and around Nova Scotia between 94 and 95. And these and the confession was obtained after police interrogation tactics were were used, right? And these tactics included exaggerating the infallibility of the polygraph exam. Now, as we've discussed in previous sessions, the polygraph is not admissible in Canadian courts, right? So the suspect might not have known that, and the police definitely played up how accurate those things are. So implying that, you know, they could uh, perhaps, other than the polygraph which confirmed his guilt, they implied that psychiatric help would be provided if the defendant confessed. They were minimizing the seriousness of the crime during that whole interrogation and suggesting that a confession 
would spare Oikel's girlfriend from having to undergo a stressful interrogation. So there was some trickery there that, you know, was, that was employed. Now, the trial judge admitted the confession, but the Court of Appeal actually overturned and entered an acquittal. Now, however, on appeal before the Supreme Court of Canada, a ruling was then handed down which stated that Oikel's confession was properly admitted by the trial judge, and therefore his conviction should stand, despite the interrogation techniques employed by the police. So here's an example, if you will, of what may be used and what may still be considered admissible. By comparison, the case in 1999 of R versus Hoylet was a whole different circumstance. So Hoylet uh, was arrested for sexual assault in Toronto on November 28, 1997. And at the time of his arrest, he was severely under the influence of alcohol and crack cocaine. So the police put him in a holding cell and ordered him to remove his clothes for forensic examination. All of his clothes were taken, including his underwear, his shoes, socks. He was left naked in the cell for an hour, hour and a half approximately. Then at 3 o'clock in the morning, he was awakened, given some light clothes, but no underwear and no shoes. Um, oh, actually, sorry, they gave him shoes, but they did not fit. He was then taken from his cell to be interrogated at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the interviewing officer was aware that he had, you know, previously he had consumed alcohol and crack cocaine that evening, but believed in his statement that the suspect was no longer impaired during the interrogation, only tired, right? And so keep in mind, this is a person who has consumed uh, a lot of alcohol and crack cocaine and then sits in a cell for an hour and a half and at three o'clock in the morning is supposedly completely sober. Hoylet made inc an incriminating statement to the police at the time and the trial judge ruled that the statement was made voluntarily and knowingly, and therefore it was admissible. In his ruling, the trial judge openly disapproved of the inhumane contact um, you know, demonstrated by the police in Toronto in that case. However, the judge had concluded that the free will of the defendant was not affected by his treatment, and Hoylet was convicted on one count of sexual assault. Now, you can see why this case would, would lead to an appeal, right? There were clearly some extenuating circumstances that might be viewed as in, inhumane, and the trial judge openly disapproved of the inhumane contact, yet maintained in his ruling that, you know, Hoylet was capable of giving uh, a voluntary statement. Now, when this case went uh, to appeal before the Ontario Court of Appeals, they ruled that the deprivation caused by the police had a significant impact on the statement and added that there was substantial evidence that he was not competent at the time he was interviewed. So the court reversed the trial judge's ruling and ordered a new trial. So these rulings, they give us some indication of, as to how far Canadian police officers can go with coercive interrogation tactics before it is even considered to be too far by the courts. But we have a very clear sense between those two cases I just gave you of how different and how much latitude can be used. So England, where the courts have used restricted, uh, you know, where they have restricted the use of many techniques found in the Reed model, they have adopted a more investigative uh, interviewing style called the Peace model. They have almost completely abandoned the term interrogation uh, in favor of the term investigative interviewing. And they're trying to distance themselves, if you will, from the North American style of interrogation practices. And then finally, in Canada, the video recording of interrogations by the police has become common practice. 
One criticism often of the footage, though, is that they tend to focus primarily on the suspect, which makes it difficult to determine the degree of coercion that is being used to extract the confession, if any. So why worry so much about how an interrogation is conducted? Right? That might be the logical question. And I think oftentimes the starting assumption is that an interrogation that leads to a confession must in the end justify the means uh, used to obtain it. At least for some people, the confession in itself almost feels like case closed. Right? But we do know that there's one phenomena that does exist that can be a byproduct of a poorly conducted investigation. And that would be a false confession. So if a concession, a confession should be considered false if it is elicited in response to a demand for confession um, and is either intentionally fabricated or is not based on actual knowledge of the facts that form its contents. Research indicates that when people have been wrongfully convicted of a crime, a false confession is often to blame. So... There are challenges, needless to say, in this type of conversation. It's hard to determine the frequency of false confessions because it is impossible to determine whether a confession is actually false. Right? The fact that a confession is coerced does not mean that the confession is false. Just as a conviction based on confession evidence does not mean that the confession is true. Right? They're complicating factors. Now, there are different types of false confessions, and you should be familiar with all of them. So let's break those down. The first type we'll talk about is voluntary false confessions. A false confession that is provided without any elicitation from the police. And people voluntarily false confess for a whole variety of reasons. Some morbid desire for notoriety, the person being unable to distinguish fact from fantasy, the need to make up for some pathological feelings of guilt by receiving punishment for something, even if they didn't do it. Or a desire to protect somebody else from harm. So those are some common reasons why you might get a voluntary false confession, right? So here the police aren't doing anything to elicit it, but it's voluntarily given. The second one we look at is coerced, compliant false confession. So that's a confession that results from a desire to escape a coercive interrogation environment, or gain a benefit promised by the police. So here the suspect might confess to a crime even though the suspect is fully aware that he or she did not commit it. This type of false confession is perhaps the most common. It's caused by the use of coercive interrogation tactics on the part of the police. And this is what I was alluding to earlier. New evidence has shown that you know these advanced uh, interrogation techniques or torture, as they were once called, or coerced, uh, forced confessions, more often than not provided bad intel. They provided bad information because people just wanted to say anything to stop the pain, right? It was not reliable as an investigative tool, and that's one of the biggest reasons we know that it's not just morally or ethically wrong, it's tactically ineffective. Now, the last one is, is complicated. And it's called, we call it coerced, internalized false confessions. So here a confession that results from suggestive interrogation techniques where the confessor actually comes to believe 
that he or she actually committed the crime, even though they didn't. It usually happens after they have been exposed to highly suggestible questions. Now, several vulnerability factors associated with this type of false confession may include a history of substance abuse or other interferences with brain function, the inability of people to detect discrepancy between what they observed and what has been erroneously suggested to them, and factors associated with mental state such as severe anxiety, confusion, or feelings of guilt can all confuse somebody and mix up in muddles memories that were implanted or given or suggested from things that actually happened. In those circumstances, and so those circumstances, uh, many of the people that confess actually come to believe that they are guilty, even though in reality they hadn't done the crime or they hadn't done what they were being accused of. It was the manner in which they were questioned that led them and somehow convinced them that they must have been guilty. Right Now, two psychological factors influence the coerced complain, uh, compliant false confession and the coerced internalized false confession as it relates to the confessors. Right? One is compliance, and that refers to a tendency to go along with the demands made by people perceived to be in authority, even though the person may not agree with them. So you see this in the general population a lot. You see our deference to authority happen more often than we'd like to contend with. A primary example from psychology is Stanley Milgram and the Milgram experiment, which showed that people's blind conformity or the blind obedience to authority can lead us down some very troubling paths. Now, the second factor is suggestibility, and this refers to the tendency to accept information communicated without questioning. And this is why most of your professors and most of the people that are teaching classes are always talking about the importance of dissent, questioning the information you get, being critical in your examination and in your analysis. When people don't question critically what is being told to them or what type of information they're consuming, they have a tendency to become a little bit more suggestible. And when that happens, we're more likely to adopt um, you know, narratives that are provided or seem readily accessible. So now, obviously, there are some, there are some con consequences, some major consequences to false confessions, and the most obvious of them is the impact that it has on the person who's falsely confessed, especially when that confession is admitted in evidence in court. Right? So now it's taken an untrue thing and turned it into a legally recognized truth that is then used to determine guilt or innocence. And we know the jurors are greatly biased by the existence of a, of a confession. Even if that confession was coerced, it has a tendency to convert or convince or at least at the bare minimum bias jurors who find it very hard to ignore that somebody confessed to a crime, no matter how that confession was obtained. Now finally, as I was indicating earlier, it wastes a lot of police time and resources following up on false leads, right? When that time could have been used to identify and apprehend a real offender. So the subject of whether or not we're obtaining good, reliable intel, whether the confessions have integrity and produce actionable investigative information is not a small fact, right? It is a material fact in the investigation of a crime. And so it is incumbent on the police, it's incumbent on law enforcement to do the best, not just to respect people's rights uh, and freedoms, not just to be ethical, but also to manage to get the most efficient, 
and accurate investigative information. So in this segment, we're going to talk about another investigative tool that's different from interrogations. This is the things that lead to an arrest. And it's probably one of those uh, topics that have gotten a lot of media attention because it's been the subject of TV shows. We're going to talk about criminal profiling in this section. Right? It's an investigative technique for identifying the major personality and behavioral characteristics of an individual based upon an analysis of the crime he or she has committed. And in many, in many crimes, the victim and the offender know each other, and there's often a clear motivation for the crime, such as passion or greed or revenge. But when it is more difficult to identify a suspect, is often the case when the victim and the offenders are strangers or there's no clear motive. The police in those circumstances often rely on unconventional investigative techniques, one of them being criminal profiling. So numerous terms have been used to describe the technique. Um, they've been called criminal profiling, psychological profiling, offender profiling, and investigative profiling. And most of them are all about the same, they have the same purpose, right? So profiling is most commonly used in cases of serial homicide and rape, or sexual assault as we would call it here in Canada. It is most applicable in cases in which extreme forms of psychopathology are exhibited by the offender, including sadistic torture or perhaps some ritualistic behavior. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to help the police identify the criminal by narrowing down a list of suspects. So it's an investigative tool. It's, it's closing the loop, if you will, or it's trying to narrow the pool of suspects. And it's using a profile to understand who they might be. It's not infallible, but with time and, and experience and data, we have gotten better in the law enforcement community of utilizing it as a strong investigative uh, aid. So common personality and behavioral char characteristics uh, the profilers try to predict include the offender's age, their sex, race, uh, level of intelligence, educational history, the kind of hobbies they may engage in, the kind of family background they might come from, their residential location, uh, what type of criminal history they may or may not have, their employment status, their psychosexual development, and post-offense behavior. And these predictions are usually made by forensic psychologists and psychiatrists, either with clinical or research experience with offenders. Now, in terms of the origins of profiling, Many people sort of believe it started in the 1970s with the FBI, and they do get a lot of credit for modern-day profiling. However, there are numerous examples of profiling techniques that were being used long before that time. You know, you could go back to the 1400s, and there was profiling characteristics written down by contractors of the Catholic Church. Uh, that was written for the purpose of accurately identifying and eradicating witches, so they had a, a working profile to help them identify who was most likely a witch. And as we all know, the witch trials are um, an interesting uh, you know, and sad uh, historical event. Uh, but it was based on what they thought at the time was, uh, was a profile of witches. More uh, sort of you know, less contentious, perhaps, is the famous case of Jack the Ripper in 1988 in Whitechapel, London. Uh, 
that one is probably one of the first times that a criminal profiling was you know was used in the investigation they were trying to figure out uh you know who this person was and under what circumstances you know they could use uh to understand if you will um who they might be who this person might be and they didn't have a very very clear sense uh all they had was what had happened in the case and that was what they used to develop the profile so there were the five murders and the five murders occurred in 1888 and there were dozens more between 1888 and 1892 that remained unsolved but the basic profile for jack the ripper they based on everything they had at the time was um you know they would have assumed that he was a local resident uh, a male in his late 20s probably employed uh, murders generally occurred on weekends so that would give you an explanation for the employment he was probably single without family ties because they know that most of the murders took place between 12 a.m and 6 a.m was most likely of low class murders showed a lack of care or attention to detail there was uh, you know, not surgically, the person was not surgically skilled, but definitely possessed some sort of anatomical knowledge. Probably known to the police as a past offender, seen by family and acquaintances as a loner, probably abused or deserted as a child by his mother. Now, those were working assumptions, and the profile I just read out to you was one that was created by the FBI about Jack the Ripper in 1988. What is interesting about the profile is that it closely remember, uh, resembled another profile carried out at the time of the murders by Dr. Thomas Bond. So in 1888, Dr. Bond, who had carried out the autopsy of, Ripper's, uh, final, of the Ripper's final victim, Mary Jane Kelly, also looked at previous victims and wrote down his thoughts about the type of individual that the police should be looking for. His report on November 10th 1888 described these features that you can compare to that 1988 profile I just read you. So in in 1888, um, you know, 100 years before, Dr. Bond suggests that he was probably middle-aged, probably not in regular employment, physically strong, quiet and inoffensive in appearance, neatly and respectably dressed, probably lacked anatomical knowledge, probably solitary or a loner, and probably eccentric or odd in behavior. So it's fascinating. A hundred years apart, the FBI's profile, uh, with all of the years of experience, looks a lot like the profile of the person that did the autopsy of uh, Jack the Ripper's final victim. It goes to show, if nothing else, that the idea and the concept of criminal profiling had existed long before the 1970s. The FBI, for their part, in the 1970s were probably responsible for the first time that profiles were produced in some sort of systematic way by a law enforcement agency. It was also the first time the training, uh, that training was provided on how to conduct criminal profiles subsequent to the development of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit in 1972. For those of you that watch your TV shows, this, the basic premise of the uh, more recent contemporary show Criminal Minds. There is 
another issue that comes up when you think about profiling and profiling works well in some circumstances but what is really essential with a criminal profile is that it is equally well communicated across jurisdictions in canada we have a system called vicless uh, which is an acronym right and it stands for the violent crime linkage analysis system uh, one of rcmp's more significant uh, advances uh, and then it was developed in the 1990s, right? So it's an automated system for linking serial crimes. It was designed to assist with the problem of the, you know, the inability of police to link geographically dispersed serial crimes committed by the same offender because of the lack of communication amongst police agencies. So the, the common term used for that was linkage blind blindness, right? Today, the system is being used all over the world, from England to Australia to Germany, and they're used to solve geographically dispersed serial crimes, right? So if you look at the types of profiling, essentially there are two broad categories, right? And to a large extent, it is dependent upon the profiler's experience and intuition. But the one type is deductive criminal profiling, right? Profiling the background characteristics of an unknown offender based on evidence left at the crime scene by that particular offender. So it relies on a certain amount of logical reasoning to be able to study that crime scene and figure out something about the offender from it. The second is called inductive criminal profiling. That's profiling the background characteristics of an unknown offender based on what we know about other solved cases. So here it's like, you know, like trying to group like things and see if we can come up with some commonality. It is based on the premise that if certain crimes committed by different people uh, are similar, then the offenders must also share some characteristics in common, some personality traits in common. It relies largely on determination of how likely it is an offender will possess certain background characteristics given the prevalence of these characteristics amongst known offenders who've committed similar crimes. An example would be using a statistical profile for, you know, um, a murderer who kills children. The analysis might reveal that offenders would generally know the victim, the offender would have a previous criminal conviction, the offender would be single, the offender would probably live within 8 kilometers of the crime scene, and most likely the offender would be under the age of 20. There was a, an example of a statistical profile of, uh, you know, murder suspects in known cases involving murder of children, right? So there's there's one example of how you might use inductive criminal profiling to take a look at a large amount of crime data and then extrapolate backwards what type of criminal or what type of personality they might have. Then you have the organized disorganized model, right? A profiling model that was developed by the FBI as well in the 1980s that assumes that the crime scene and backgrounds of serial offenders can be categorized as either organized or disorganized. Now, organized crime scenes reflect behavior that is well-planned and is uh, controlled. It's a controlled crime, while disorganized behavior reflects someone who is more impulsive, right? It's an impulsive crime, which is more chaotic in nature. An offender's background can be classified as either organized or disorganized. Organized background characteristics reflect a methodical individual, while disorganized characteristics reflect a disturbed individual, usually suffering from some form of psychopathology.
The other type of profiling, similar to what I was saying Vicless was meant to do, is geographic profiling, an investigative technique that uses crime scene locations to predict the most likely area where the offender resides. Most often used in cases of serial homicide and sexual assault, uh, they're used primarily for prioritizing potential suspects. The basic assumption behind geographical profiling is that most serial offenders do not travel far from home to commit their crimes. Research supports this assumption, but for those traveling offenders, right, those that use the interstate highways in the United States or the Trans-Canada in Canada, geographical profiling is typically not a useful investigative strategy because they are more likely to travel and disperse out. That's where a system like Vicless becomes particularly important because what it does is it takes geographically dispersed crimes and creates a communication model that links them so that regardless of jurisdiction, police services have access to that information. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about racial profiling because racial profiling as we commonly understand it is not really an essential part of criminal profiling per se. And it's easy to mix the two up. So racial profiling, as you know, to define it, is police-initiated action that relies on the race or ethnicity of an individual rather than that individual's criminal behavior to come up with some sort of characteristic profile. One of the most common forms of racial profiling, uh, you know, perhaps is the stop and frisk that gets talked about a lot in a Canadian context, carding or stopping and searching vehicles, or you know something like that. In Canada, there have been allegations of racial profiling uh, being used by Canadian police agencies, and you know the most notable uh, one being the Toronto Police Service, and there was a large expose on it. Uh, if you go back through the archives and the records, the media records, you'll see the long-standing debate over carding. Uh, similar issues were discussed in New York with stop and frisk. Either way, the practice of racial profiling is generally considered to be poor policing because it does not lead to quality information. But as a statement, objective, as an objective definition, the function of racial profiling would be to use race and ethnicity to try and, and say more about uh, you know, a criminal or potential suspect. Uh, not, very, you know, not very reliable, um, but unfortunately there's very little published uh, research articles in empirical research data from Canada that examines the issue of racial profiling and efforts to remedy the situation are often hindered by the fact that Canadian police agencies do not collect the sort of data that's required to conduct such research. This is a, a constant gripe with academics in Canada. But I'll give you a case of interest um, that you know might speak to this issue. So R versus Brown in 2003 is one of those cases that got a lot of media attention. Uh, Brown being uh, a former uh, Toronto Raptors basketball player. So this case is important because it sets out how a person would actually argue that an action was based on racial profiling rather than the discretionary powers of police. Right? And we talked about discretion in the previous episode. So this case also reaffirms the importance of procedural fairness and the need for trials to be fair and appear to be fair and the role the decision maker, um, you know, the, and the role of the decision-maker as an impartial party. So in deciding the appeal, the Court of Appeals considered how a person could prove that racial profiling had occurred. The Court of Appeal addressed this issue by saying that racial profiling will rarely 
be proven by direct evidence, right? That an example would be an officer admitting that he or she was influenced by race in his or her uh, discretionary decision to stop a motorist, for example. So the, the court in this case explained that if racial profiling is to be proven, it must be proven by circumstantial evidence. And this type of evidence is based on an inference or an assumption that can be drawn from other established facts or evidence. So where the evidence shows that the circumstances relating to the detention correspond with racial profiling, the court can then infer that the officer may have been motivated by racial profiling, at least in part. Now, in this case, the Court of Appeal accepted the evidence presented during the trial that indicated Officer Olson was motivated by subconscious racial stereotypes. And the evidence that supported this finding was the following. Mr. Brown was wearing a baseball cap and jogging suit while driving an expensive car. Officer Olson looked into Mr. Brown's car while driving alongside him on the road. Officer Olson ran a vehicle report on the car before stopping Mr. Brown. There was evidence of a second set of notes that had been prepared. There were differences in the time reported in Officer Olson's notebook and the times that he had uh, given the breath analyzer uh, technician. The court also stated that racial profiling in criminal investigations is based on a belief by a police officer that a person's color combined with other circumstances, make him or her more likely to be involved in a criminal activity. The court acknowledges the studies on racial profiling that suggest that when a person looks out of place, racial profiling is more likely to occur than in an area where his or her skin color is prominent. Now, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, all of police handlings of, you know, either interrogations or profiling or investigations and detentions are negative. Far from it. In fact, the instances uh, in where that is the case is probably rare compared to the everyday interactions, and police get a lot of calls for service in any given year. The point to understand is that psychology has a role to play in the investigation of a crime, in the interviewing of a subject uh, who you're trying to get a confession out of. All of these things have large psychological elements to it, and future law enforcement officers would be would benefit from at least a rudimentary understanding of forensic psychology and psychology in general. I talked to you about a couple of cases. Those cases uh, that, that we discussed in this episode give you some sort of sense of how the court evaluated, um, you know, an issue that came up. But all of that, those decisions, those precedents, those cases, the psychological assessments, all of them help us understand investigations and investigative techniques a little bit better. So consider all of those cases. Uh, consider the videos that you know you are most likely to watch on the subject of interrogations. The case of Russell Williams being one of the more popular ones of an excellent investigation and an excellent uh, interrogation. It's used widely to train interrogators today, uh, and we you know. We look at the manner in which that was conducted, and that would be one of those very positive examples of the use of psychological setup, right? When you think about everything in an interrogation room, everything involves a certain level of psychological manipulation, right? The physical layout of the interrogation room is designed to maximize uh, the suspect's discomfort, right? Their sense of powerlessness, if you will. 
and that's done right from the minute they walk into that room. Interrogators attempt to develop rapport with the suspect, you know, using casual conversation in a non-threatening way. Uh, active listening is a very, very big part, matching and mirroring what's going on, using little bits of information to tease out the story, uh, trying to find ways that incriminating evidence connects properly, all of which are tools that require a great deal of patience in this psychological cat and mouse game. And that was some of the subjects we were trying to talk about and explore in this episode. I hope you found it informative. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. You're listening to Complexity Unpacked with Professor Gonsalves.